0: Good afternoon
1: and welcome. It's Monday time for our Zoomer squad. And today is the first day of Ontario's fixing long term care act in effect. So will it fix the relationship between the homes and family caregivers, which it now recognizes? for the first time. We're hearing stories about family members being banned from certain kinds of contact and places of contact after complaining about care. Last Thursday's federal budget, I'm afraid, met Zoomer expectations. Crickets. But I want to begin with a very sad story, very personal for many people here. (music) Yesterday, there was a funeral for eminent conductor Maestro Boris Brot. He wasn't sick. He wasn't frail. He was mown down in a hit and run crash last week when he was out for a walk. We're doubly burdened with the loss of the man himself and the manner of his death. And I bet this has made a lot of people in our audience. Think about it. So random, he was healthy, out for a walk. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to bring in David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP. Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at Carp, and Peter Muggridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. Hello, everyone.
2: Hi Libby. Hi, Libby.
1: Well, it's a terrible death from someone who was very talented, very accomplished, very much beloved. And uh, those things, none of those things shielded him. And We know that when older people are hit, they are more likely to succumb to their injuries, even though he was healthy. He was out for a walk.
3: Out for a walk, yeah. And I think that this, you're right, it makes us all think about the uh, extra vulnerability. I mean, the randomness can happen to anybody, but the extra vulnerability of older people, even if they are fit. I think he was 78. um, And so... You're, you're carrying that extra vulnerability with you. And then to have a career like that, uh, not only was he brilliant, but he did so much to make classical music accessible to everybody. We had, you know, concert performances at the DeFasco the Steel plant in Hamilton. He was not somebody that kept it up on a, a pedestal away from uh, the audience. He was, he, was, he was accessible. He was that, that type of person. And to have that talent... Uh, cut off so needlessly is very tragic
1: and so abruptly and uh, it kind of brings home everything we've been talking about for years and years on vision zero and the dangers to all pedestrians Peter
4: yeah and and it's I I was just uh, skinny, uh skimming the headlines excuse me um looking at at pedestrian accidents and almost every single headline is uh senior killed in a hit and run accident you know elderly couple struck down and it 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 seems um sort of invariably an older person and invariably hit and run and um i don't understand why so many are 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 uh, so many drivers take off after the after the uh it just seems like a a callous disregard for for uh, their actions, and and I, you know, if if they hit another car, I, I can almost see them, you know, leaving before they, you know, they have to pay their insurance tab. But but hitting another person and then taking off, I, I just it, it it it's something that that's going on with alarming frequency, and I and I can't myself understand it.
1: mm Hmm. Well. I know that what this was a different case because now the SIU is investigating both the accused and they have charged a 33 year old man um, and some police officers were taken to hospital afterwards. So we don't exactly know what was going on with this. They say that sometimes after it happens, people are in shock Mm -hmm. or sometimes not aware, but then they return. You know, they, they return because, you know what? You're going to get caught. Bill, what do you make of this?
2: Well, I, first of all, uh, such a uh, sad occurrence for many of us. Uh, Boris Brot was the person who brought us back to interest in classical music. I had the opportunity to hear him both in Hamilton and when he was here in Halifax, uh, visiting and uh, met him a couple of times he was a tremendous educator and such a lot for the uh, for the entire country that we lose somebody like this in such a tragic uh, way and as for somebody leaving the scene of the accident and and I, you know we always hear about well they were in shock but this this more often seems like an excuse afterwards than than uh, the the truth. They're they're running away from uh, what they what they did, and uh, I'm afraid that's what happens with with many people when they do anything that's wrong. Their their first uh, uh, thing they want to do is to get away from it, and then maybe uh, come back. But just sad all
1: around. Mm. Do you think? That in any way, something like this may change something, may hasten some of those measures that are supposed to help,
3: David? I don't know that it would, because in this case, you're also dealing with dangerous operation of a vehicle. And that that's, it would be one thing if there was like nobody's fault quite, maybe he was crossing the street and didn't get, you know, was, I, I'm making this up, this isn't the case here but there are c- c- situations where maybe uh, to your point somebody does panic they drive a few blocks they can't believe and then they come back and because they weren't necessarily criminally liable maybe it was just a tragic accident but in this case you have a, a criminal charge is going to be brought forward and um i think uh, he's in jail he's you know he's bills in jail. Right. He was trying to get away with yeah. with something that's going to have very serious consequences that not every single uh, accident and even every single fatality has criminal consequences. This one does. And I think you can't stop these kinds of people from, they're out there, and we just have to hope that uh, uh, we manage to avoid them.
1: I mean, the accused, he's in jail. He doesn't even have a bail hearing till the 20th of the month. So, clearly there are consequences. Clearly, in this case, there's maybe... More to it. I know that with other cases, if the charge was dangerous driving or negligence, people are they they kill someone and they get off with a fine of a thousand dollars or something, and that that leaves the families even more des- devastated.
3: For sure, For sure, it does.
1: I mean, is this bill? Would you say just? a uh, wrong place, wrong time or is is there anything that is jumping out as something that we can correct?
2: I wish I wish I would have a good suggestion of what we could correct, how we can can somehow get drivers of all kinds to understand uh, the, the dangers that they put in front of people and especially, uh, older people. Older people walk more often. They're more often on the streets. They're more open to, uh, uh, being hurt very badly if they're, they're hit. There's, uh, there's a, a huge issue just with, uh, driving and, and people somehow feeling, uh, when they're behind the wheel of a, a car they don't have to they don't have to pay attention they don't have to uh, uh, be as careful as they should be and and I don't know that stronger uh, laws or rules are going to do uh, anything uh, anything ab- about it uh, and I just hope that uh, this isn't the case of uh, us being more critical and firmer with the uh, with the, the culprit. Uh, now, because it was Boris brought, or that this brings it attention to the, the the so-called experts in uh, uh, safe uh, safe driving and safe cities, that they that they can come up with some way of preventing these things from happening, as you said earlier, uh, so often to our older loved ones.
1: Let's turn now to the new Fixing Long Term Care Act. So, is it going to fix anything? interesting story in the star chronicling some family caregivers who are now recognized under this law who've been barred uh, from either certain areas of nursing homes or from talking to staff or from certain aspects of their daily interactions with their loved ones. And the homes say they ha- are, have been harassing stuff. They say they have just made comments about the care. There's always two sides to this story. And of course, uh, you know, there are some people where you can just make a point and they'll say they will feel harassed. So, I mean, how, how is something like this resolved?
3: The act doesn't appear to contain a mechanism for that kind of dialogue and, if necessary, arbitration. So you're left with, yeah, we recognize the patients and their families have rights. On the other hand, we hear a lot about, and we've talked about it on this program, shortage of PSW, shortage of workers, impossible conditions, not enough pay, Um, not enough resources to do the job well. So you have this arena where a lot of uh, intense feelings can exist, and you don't have a mechanism for getting everybody to the table to talk. about. I think that's the deficiency. I don't think there's any way of avoiding some conflict in these kinds of situations. It's just a lot of averages. You get enough people. But what's the um, system? for airing it in a respectful way and dealing with it. And that appears to be like these people that got banned have no uh, recourse. They have no right of appeal well, to any, anybody.
1: Exactly. And and at least one of these people who's in this story in the star said, it's just retaliation, pure and simple. I mean, and how do we know, really? Uh, Bill, I mean, is that would that solve it? Having recourse, having some kind of, I don't know, arbiter, ombudsperson? Well,
2: it, it, it might, but that would be after the fact. Over and over, uh, CARP has, has heard these stories that just are based on poor communication between the homes and the families and, and the, uh, their, their residents. And, uh, there, we can understand that, uh, uh low, low staffing, uh, levels and, uh, uh interpretation of of government rules sometimes lead to uh, to disagreements but uh, the communication has been uh, has been poor and once again going back to our traditional medical model that we have to get o- get over and get past and that is that the system says this is uh, this is what's going on This is the problem. This is how you should fix it. Now go do, do this one way communication from the top. Historically, that's the way the system has worked until, until everyone agrees that it has to be two way. There has to be discussion that decisions have to be made with families and patients, not just for them. We're going to continue to have this kind of, uh, this kind of problem and, and, and this, this new government, uh, uh, rules of the coming, in fact, now have done nothing to improve the uh, uh, communication or the the uh, reasons that the poor communication happens in the first place. Peter,
4: there's, there's always an element of friction between the, you know, the the, the nursing home staff and the, um, you know, the family, because you, as a family member, you know, you don't want your loved one to not have the top care that, you know, that can be offered. And, and if you see any any sort of indication that he or she isn't getting the top kind of care, then there's going to be friction and there's going to be emotions. And and these kind of arguments break out on a daily basis, and they often end with, I'm sorry, I, I lost my head, or, you know, the, the nursing home admitting they could have done better. and And, and so... You know, often they're just solved at a human level, and and you don't need it like um you know a bureaucrat to come in and and sort of uh, act as an ombud and and solve it. But in the in the case of the star article, where where you know it, it seems to have escalated to a point where, um, you know the, the woman's not even allowed to see her, uh her her family member in in uh, in certain areas of the home, and she can't talk to uh, caregivers, and that that's escalated to a point where something. You know, uh, it, it can't be solved at a human level and it doesn't look like it, there's, there's legal, uh, recourse. So, um, I, I'm, I, maybe at this point, um, you know, th- there could be an, a, a higher arbitrator called in to solve it. But, uh, I think these, th- those kind of cases are very rare and that, you know, families and staff, I, I know in our case, we often sort of, you know, we had, we had issues, but we solved them and, um, you know there there is there is you you can work with with these homes and 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 I I don't know what a um you know what what an ombudsman would do or, or like how it would help or, you know the immediate situation on the ground level
1: Peter if if I may ask can you tell us a little bit more about your situation who's in a nursing home what kind of problems was it just you didn't think the care was adequate or yeah what?
4: yeah and it, it and it was sort of like the way they were um now this is several years ago but it was it was the way they were um doling out medicine they they would do it like um you know uh, by by room number and uh you know our 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 family member um you know had a certain routine where by the time the nurse got to her she was you know doing whatever she was doing and um, we we just asked, can, can you change the routine so she gets her meds earlier in the in the day? And because they were so they're so sort of married to these schedules that it was it was very difficult for them to say, okay, we'll do that. You know, we'll, we'll just. But because because they're so married to these schedules, they, they had to keep doing it, and and you know, voices were raised, and we went to the the floor manager and the director, and 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 it got solved. You know, like it got solved. Um, Apologies on both sides, um, and there was no retribution or anything, and there was no sort of um, mistreatment of her or her needs. But it, it just like these kind of things are, are inevitable, I think, and and it's just a, a human nature, you know, emotions get oh, raw, and you, you it's it's not great for anyone, but um, you know, it, it's just a friction that's unavoidable, really. Uh,
1: you know, that's that that's really interesting, and it it just kind of. Brings to mind, boy. If 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 that if that's a situation with one, I would think relatively small request. Give her the meds earlier in the yeah. day. What's going to happen? People are saying, uh, let people in nursing homes decide when they want to eat. I mean, I know. I mean, how are they going to do that? <laughs> times
3: every. But they're going to. Well, they are. There, there, are, do there it. are examples where where
2: that is is done. Where where these homes are divided into units that are smaller and managed in smaller uh, uh, numbers, uh, often nineteen is is considered a. A good number of units to have in one cluster and then this kind of decision can be uh, made and if if the homes are built in such a way there can be these clusters and if there are enough staff which is the the huge problem uh these days then uh those kinds of uh scheduling and and uh uh, going by the the system is not as difficult as when you're in the larger uh, larger setting. So it can be done, but it's going to take a lot more than uh, a few uh, simple changes and decisions.
1: Well, it it sounds like one of the main changes is you know the mindset.
3: That's exactly right. There are <laughs> there are discussions in the to be fair in the nursing home industry that have gone on for quite a while. Uh, how do we convert from a, a Quasi medical institution to a more patient centered, or even I I prefer uh, resident centered um, model where their needs come first and we build around that rather than placing them in a you know impersonal ward where we just go up and down the hall and dispense whatever we're dispensing. The butterfly model, the Eden alternative, the greenhouse, there are models that are actually undergoing, uh, they've been around for a while, and some of them are even coming into Canada, where you flip the whole mindset to your question you just posed, Libby, that the patient comes first.
1: Well, we'll we'll have to see how that goes. And uh, one of the things that I'm kind of watching, it seems like every day, every other day, there's an announcement, we're building, I don't know how many beds. And I just find it hard with all this kind of piecemeal announcement. I mean, you know, obviously we'll have to go back and count and see how it stacks up uh, uh, against the promise, but that was only one aspect of the promise. And just these piecemeal announcements, uh, they just seem, you know, (laughs) like a distraction, Peter. And,
4: like, you know, Bill and David have... Have been uh, saying it right from the get go, it, it can't be done piecemeal, it can't be done band aid, it has to be a holistic look at the whole system and, uh, you know, retrenchment and then, you know, launch a new system. And, and, uh, you, you can't do it by adding 32 beds here or 68 beds there. You, you have to do it like a, and, and it, and it looks like, you know, it looks like this government is going to do like the last government did, like the last government, like the last government, and just do little, uh, patchwork changes that um, aren't going to change the whole system.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> that's the short answer. Is is but
3: I, but I think, in fairness, I think you have to do both. I don't think they can sit back and say we're no, we're announcing nothing. But guess what? Have we got a big announcement four years from now? Poof! It's all changed. So they are going to be redesigning the airplane while it's flying. The 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 new facility they announced in Ajax a couple months ago that the premier attended does have smaller uh, units subdivided. It feels more like a residence. The premier, when he was talking to Carp, said he wanted to find out more about. Was very interested in emotional based care. I think you have to do a lot of different things simultaneously. I'm not so much against the piecemeal. I would be if that was the only thing they were doing. But I think you got to build more beds. You got to hire more people. You got to change the whole. You kind of got to do them all, more or less, at the same time. uh, You know, to be fair to the to the uh, to the government, I think they're. I'm not saying they're succeeding, but I don't know. I don't think you can do nothing. You've got to fix, put on some Band-Aids, but also, you know, fix the body itself. And I think they are trying to do uh, both.
1: That's an interesting point. Let's take a call from Bella in Oshawa. Hi, Bella.
5: Hi. Well, I just want to let you know that I have recently had my husband admitted to the brand-new Lake Ridge Gardens nursing home. Yep. But it was one struggle. My husband's been diagnosed for seven years. Wow. The last two years have been horrible between trying to get home care, which, you know, they tout home care as trying to keep them at home, but people wouldn't show up and different things. And I still work. And I had to end up putting my husband in crisis care through the Lake Ridge Hospital in Oshawa, who tried to send him home every couple days. And I said, no, I couldn't bring him back home. And he was finally transferred over to Lake Ridge Gardens before it actually opened. It was just, I guess they called this um, like a transitional care. And finally on the 29th of March, he was admitted as a patient into that hole, But I'll tell you, if you don't stay on top of everything and fight like the Dickens for your rights, you fall through the cracks.
1: Was that in terms of getting in, or once you're in, are there things that you Oh, you've...
5: everything. I
1: mean, I
5: had to fight for home care. I, you know, I had to fight for, you know, everything. The only thing I didn't have to fight for was he went to a daycare program and as soon as he was diagnosed um, and he was diagnosed at the Toronto memory clinic, even though I live in Oshawa, I was told to go there because they're the best. And they put a referral into um, the Lynn to have him put in a day program. And the people in the day program were marvelous. And I recommend that highly to anybody that's dealing with an Alzheimer's patient is to get them into whatever area they live in to get them into a day program. Because I think the day program helped him for, you know, for a long time. It kept him active, kept him, you know, his mind going. But as he, you know, with COVID, things shut down and things were hard to get home care or anything and he steadily went downhill very quickly in a way.
1: Yes, as did but, as did so many other people. Bella, thank oh, you so much for sharing your story. I I think, you know, really brings home the kinds of things we're talking about.
5: That, when I was and this is all, it's hard to say, I was almost suicidal before I got him. in Because I was so exhausted. Sure. He had he was completely gone. So And I was so exhausted, and nobody was really listening to my issue. And finally, I just said, I'm done. I cannot do this anymore. I had to phone the police and the ambulance to come and get him to get him out of the home. Because I just couldn't do it anymore. The home care didn't show up that day, and he was over three and a half hours on his own. And he had made a mess of the house because I was at work and they didn't call me to tell me that they weren't coming.
1: That is just awful. I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that. And I'm glad that he's got a place now and I hope uh, your situation gets to be as good as it can be. Thank you so much. Yeah.
5: But you need to tell um, caregivers that they need to, push with all their might to get things for themselves.
1: Yeah. On top of everything else, Bella, thank you so much for your call.
5: You're welcome.
1: Bye-bye. And uh, basically we're out of time. I mean, I don't know what to add to that. Uh, We'll go around the virtual table. 20 seconds each, David?
3: Bella has to work for the system. The system doesn't have to work for Bella, and that's what we have to change because we can talk about policies. They can make announcements, but in the real world, at the end of that pipeline, there are people who are not being helped and who have to go to bat for themselves, and she probably could have spent another long time just talking about finding out where who to phone and who to complain to when you're going to bat for yourself. So there's a lot that needs fixing. Peter,
4: David's right. Like the the uh, the bureaucracy of getting into a home is, is Byzantine at best, and and that I haven't seen anything about fixing that. And uh, you know, treating uh, families are, you know, uh, you know, responding to their needs sooner, and not letting it get in a situation like Bella's, where where she had to like like go to a last resort and, and, and call an ambulance. And how shocking
1: thing. is that? Saying that she was. On the point of hurting herself, exactly. I mean,
2: exactly. I, like, how, how did it get to that point? It's crazy.
1: Bill, last word to you.
2: The litany of problems we've heard uh, the our listeners have an, an election coming up in Ontario in June. This is the time to talk to your local candidates, your local members, and tell them you want change now. You don't want future promises unless we put the pressure on the policymakers. This won't change. This is the time to do it.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Bill Van Gorder, Peter Mugridge, and in studio, David Kravitz.
3: Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. Okay. Thanks,
1: we will take a break. And when we come back, well, there's a drug that's supposed to reduce the risk of hospitalization or death if you contract COVID. Why is it sitting on the shelves when we come back?
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome
1: back. We are in the sixth wave. And one of the reasons behind the relaxation of COVID restrictions, at least according to Doug Ford, is that we now have supplies of Paxlovid, it's a drug that treats the virus as opposed to trying to prevent it. And it's been shown to reduce the risk of hospitalization and death. But according to a tally in the Globe and Mail, the vast majority of those supplies are sitting unused in every province except for PEI. And that instead of being dispensed to high-risk patients, so what are the barriers to access and why are they even there? If you have questions, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association and Dr. Kashif Pirzada, who is an emergency physician in Toronto and a founder of the Critical Drugs Coalition. Uh, Welcome to you both, and thank you for being with us. Good afternoon. So, Dr. Pirzada, what's the barrier to access? Can a doctor uh, just prescribe this to a patient he thinks needs it?
6: Well, till so now, uh, you have to go to a special clinic. Your family doctor couldn't prescribe it. You had to go to one of a dozen or so clinics in the province. And then they were prescribed it. You had to go to a special pharmacy and then get it there's a lot of barriers to that it was very hard to access especially in rural areas and very very few people actually got the dose i think like you mentioned only 1 or 2%. so that that was a huge barrier in getting this drug out to people.
1: well uh yeah and it's it's you're supposed to take it within 5 days of diagnosis why did they do it like this?
6: I think at the start, there was very little of this drug to go around, especially when it was approved in January. There were just you know, a few, few hundred or a few thousand doses. But, you know, manufacturing is scaled up. There's about a hundred thousand doses available. Now, it's not enough to you know, cover everyone in Ontario, but it's still enough to get a lot of the elderly and vulnerable who may otherwise end up in hospital. And the clinic system is just that they set up is just not, doesn't have the scale to handle that.
1: Uh, Let's bring in Justin Bates. Uh, You would like pharmacists to be able to prescribe this, right?
7: I think we need an integrated solution so that we have traditional care paths through primary care physicians that prescribe and going into the pharmacy to dispense the medication. But I also think we need to look at what would be in the best interest of access equitable access across the province um, and in reducing where people have to go and the complexity of it. So right now, I think one of the barriers that uh, has been mentioned is certainly just the availability of the supply and and where to go. But there's also a lot of lack of awareness about this. Um, People aren't necessarily... Uh, aware that they can get it and where to go it's complex but also the the fact that um, you know right now um, if, if you look at the eligibility requirements it's quite narrow and a big chunk of the eligibility until it opens up has been to date uh, the unvaccinated and if you think about that many of those not all but some in that cohort may be reluctant to get a medication since they didn't get the vaccine so you know, until we broaden the eligibility and access, we're going to see um, a little slow uptake. But, you know, things are changing, and it is opening up to more traditional care paths.
1: And Dr. Prasad, I'm assuming that if somebody is older and gets COVID, they would qualify somebody uh, up there in age? No?
6: It's interesting you say that. Like, I think Dr. Moore at 1 o'clock after, you know, a month of not being on the public stage is actually announcing that. They're, they're really opening up. Eligibility, basically, you know, the biggest risk factor for COVID, aside from not being vaccinated, uh, for getting a severe outcome is age. basically, under the new criteria they're mentioning, uh, most people above seventy uh, would qualify for this treatment. And these are the folks that we see in hospital deteriorating, even when they are vaccinated. This would make a huge dent. You know, that's a hundred thousand uh, doses of this. That's a hundred thousand potentially people that won't end up in hospital or end up in the ER. So it'll that they're going to announce it. I think at one o'clock today, hopefully.
1: Well oh well that, that's that's good to know. I was saying oh uh he's bowed to all the pressure and and is giving a briefing again but uh, I not know that that would be the announcement. That that makes sense. Uh so Justin do you, do pharmacists want to be able to actually uh prescribe it or just to dispense it?
7: Well at the moment uh we are as of tomorrow going to be dispensing it um, and as as everyone knows this is a very complex um, treatment and therapy. So it does require a much more exhaustive medication review and considerations around the drug-to-drug interactions. But yes, absolutely. In certain provinces like Quebec, uh, where pharmacists are prescribing antivirals, they've expanded it to um, Paxlovid. And I think that makes a lot of sense from a access and convenience standpoint to have the confirmatory assessment and test done at a pharmacy. We have many of them doing the testing now, uh, as well as the screening assessment through to uh, dispensing. So it would be an N10 solution. And it's not going to be for everyone because of the uh, complexity of the medication um, and time commitments. Um, There will be pharmacies that will be involved in this, uh, but it won't be everyone.
1: So that's a done deal. Then, I mean, as you mentioned, Paxlovid uh, can interact with a lot of things that people may already be on, and so they may not be able to take it. Uh, and it's so. Is this is the the pharmacies will be able to do a test? What kind of a test?
7: Yeah. So right now they will accept uh, the RATs, um, so a, a rapid test as well as PCR. I know there are some discussions about um, prescribers providing even a virtual assessment to uh, someone's self-reported symptoms to increase the access um, and even uh, presumptive cases uh, to give uh, vulnerable, high-risk populations access to uh, Paxlovid. Um, but we will be there will be about uh, three hundred starting tomorrow pharmacies that will be able to dispense it. We're still not there in terms of prescribing authority, but. I think that's a great step uh, in the right direction to increase that access and and just the knowledge out there. I think a lot of people that uh, come down with symptoms in that short window of five days for it to be effective um, aren't even aware that they would qualify. So there's got to be a strong public health messaging effort behind this, uh, especially as it opens up.
1: Well, yeah. And Dr. Perzada, what you were telling me before about the previous rules, I mean, you know, when, when you come down with COVID, uh, you're sick uh, often. Some people are asymptomatic. They don't need this. But, but you're sick, and having to go to these special clinics, it just seems like it's not on.
6: You know, it's, it's thankful. Like, you know, a lot of the public pressure uh, really finally registered on the government. So I'm really glad they're opening it up. And I think, like Dustin was mentioning, like, really having it available at the point of care with pharmacies. You know, this is a this is a disease that will be with us for a long time. You need to, you know, that test to treat system where you can just you you get symptoms, you quickly test yourself, you go to the pharmacist and get a consult, make sure you can take it, and take the medication. This, you know, these waves will come. I think more medication will be available, but this is a good system to really have now to really blunt the effect on the most vulnerable patients. And um,
1: Justin. Can can somebody come with their own home test that they did? Because if you're tested in the pharmacy, there's also a cost associated with that.
7: Yes, um, that I believe uh, I would have to confirm uh, the details of that. Um, but I do know that, uh, you know, the part of the screening and assessment process is confirming the symptoms. Um, and we're trying to uh, broaden the access um, and use professional judgment uh, when uh, folks are self-reporting. But, you know, the challenge with the, self-testing is that there's a lot of false negatives um, and people aren't necessarily swabbing appropriate amount of time and doing it right and it's now recommended to do throat and nose so the, the most effective way to do it would be in the pharmacy or with another healthcare provider to ensure that you get the appropriate results um, but I think at this point getting it out there now that we have more doses is more important than uh, necessarily uh, forcing someone to take a test uh, inside the pharmacy.
1: Well, I, I I have to say quite recently I did uh, some tests for travel and they didn't swab my throat. And it was after uh, the science table had already said your throat should be swabbed. I mean, it was just a rapid test for travel, but I'm just saying. So they're going to be doing that?
7: Well, that's the guidance now is to do throat first um, and, uh, and, and a nasal swab. Um, but even doing a nasal swab and doing it properly, getting it uh, in there, uh, turning it five times both nostrils deep enough um, you know sometimes that uh, doing it on your own you're not necessarily doing it appropriately so um, yes the guidance should be followed in terms of throat and then nose and that'll give you the most accurate results.
1: Yeah uh, interesting on that I know the first time I ever did I ever did one on my own I didn't do it properly and the control line didn't show up so I knew it wasn't done properly. I'm just saying. Uh, So this uh, should be announced uh, in about 15 minutes. Dr. Perzada, will that solve the problems?
6: You know what? It's not a magic bullet. Like One of my colleagues saw someone not doing well, even while on Paxlovid. So it's a great drug. There's only 100,000, not enough for 15 million Ontarians. So it doesn't replace public health precautions. Things like masking in schools and things like that should come back because you know, we we do have this tool. It is going to be very useful, but it doesn't replace, uh, you know, common sense measures to keep this virus
7: under control.
1: And uh, Justin Bates, what would you like to leave us with? Well, I think
7: you're you're spot on uh, with that analysis. We need to continue to encourage people to get their um, first booster, the third dose, as well as their second. We have uh, the Paxmovid antivirals coming uh, as well through Health Canada approval that we need to make sure is distributed out to as many communities as possible, and of course, masking. Um, this is the simplest thing we can do to keep ourselves and everyone else safe, and it really doesn't make sense to be pushing just one uh, of these tools. We need all of them in concert to protect um, our uh, public health, but also keep things open. I mean, nobody wants to wear a mask, but uh, it's, it's probably the, the easiest thing to do to prevent the spread and uh, keep things open.
1: And Justin, just to confirm, uh, the Paxlovid will be available in 300 pharmacies as of tomorrow?
7: Yes. And then we'll be adding pharmacies uh, from that point forward uh, every day. And uh, hopefully we'll get very good uptake.
1: Okay. Thank you for that. Very good information. Appreciate it. A lot. Thank you, Justin Bates and Dr. Kashif Perzada. Thank you. Thank you. Alrighty, another break. And when we come back, it's World Parkinson's Day. And we will be talking about this disease that affects, oh, more than 100,000 Canadians.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It is World Parkinson's
1: Day. About a 100,000 Canadians suffer with the disease, which causes tremors, slowness in movements, muscle stiffness, balance problems, and cognitive impairment in the end stages. It's a progressive degenerative disease that worsens over time. The average age at diagnosis is 60. Most people are over 65 when they're diagnosed. And there are ways to manage and improve the symptoms, even though it is incurable. So if you have questions, uh, our next guest has the answers, 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 740 And now I'm joined by Dr. Karen Lee, President and CEO of Parkinson Canada. Dr. Lee, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So, uh, what is your main message on World Parkinson Day?
8: Well, our main message uh, on World Parkinson Day, and really through the whole awareness month, is that we're your partners in Parkinson's. We're here to support you in every step of the way. It's never too late to come forward, ask a question. We're here to support you.
1: Okay, so a uh, hundred thousand Canadians. That's correct. There's 100,000 Canadians who live with Parkinson's. Um,
8: Unfortunately, that number will double in the next 10 years. Um, It is one of the
1: fastest-growing neurological conditions in the world, and we really need to figure out why. Is it uh, simply because of the aging of the population? Is age a big risk factor? Yep, it is. Uh, Unfortunately, aging
8: is a big risk factor, as well as exposures to pesticides. Um, And as well, as there's a genetic component. Not everybody has a genetic component, but um, for sure, um, if you have it in your family, there may be a higher chance that you may get Parkinson's.
1: With most diseases, if you catch it early and start some kind of treatment early, what should people do uh, if they or a loved one are first diagnosed?
8: For sure. I think the earlier you can detect, um, the better. Um, unfortunately, in terms of research, that's an area that we are really pushing on as a as a community worldwide, is how do we detect earlier for people living with Parkinson's? It does take some time right now. Um, a doctor, and specifically a movement disorder specialist, needs to really look at your history to understand what has happened. And sometimes it can take a couple of years. But that being said, when they do diagnose, um, there's many things that can be done. Um, One, there are some treatments that are currently available that do help people um, with the movement coordination, that tremor we talk about that is so familiar with Parkinson's. Um, At the same time, there's a lot of work that's being done in rehabilitation and the push for wellness, so exercise, um, nutrition, um, are really
1: a, a big component of living with Parkinson's disease that can really help your quality of life. So uh, what are some of those treatments when you're first diagnosed? So one of
8: the main ones that has been around for many years is levodopa. Um, it really replaces what um, is known as dopamine that is lost in uh, the brain uh, for people living with Parkinson's. And that really does help with the tremors and rigidity. However, one of the things that I think we should be most hopeful and excited about in the next 5 to 10 years is that there will be new treatments coming through. And they're going to be called disease-modifying therapies. These are the therapies that are so critical to either slow down the disease and hopefully stop the disease progression that we're talking about.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a lot lately about something called deep brain stimulation. That's correct, yep. Tell tell me about that.
8: So deep brain stimulation, um, once again, is a surgical um, Surgical treatment intervention, we could call that um, requires somebody to um, go through um, surgery through the brain. However, once again, they will not need to necessarily take the treatment that we've talked about levodopa. If they find that that hasn't been working very well, um, this kind of kickstarts everything all over again for them um, in the brain. It's not for everyone. But when people do go under that surgery, they do see a significant difference in their ability for coordination and movement. So if people are interested in that, we do encourage them to talk uh, to their neurologist who will then understand if they're uh, um, fit the criteria for deep brain stimulation.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I mean, I actually know someone who found that very helpful. Yes. And um, I think it's a game changer, but once one of the big
8: things too deep brain stimulation does not slow down or stop the disease and that's the critical piece that we need in terms of medications and treatments because as we talked about it is a um, progressive disease and the best way to tackle that is to slow down the disease progression and ultimately stop it
1: uh-huh and are the other things you described will they slow it down at least so I think um, when we talk about
8: exercise and nutrition, I think overall, it makes people feel better. And I think that's really critical. If we are hearing people feel better um, and it works for them, then I really encourage them, when it, especially when it comes to exercise and nutrition. Um, but right now, there are still no treatments, and that's what we actively are trying to fund and working with others worldwide uh, to really have those disease-modifying therapies to slow down and stop the disease.
1: And what is uh is it is it just a kind of a healthy diet that most people should that 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 doctors recommend for most people, or is there anything different with the kind of diet you would want people with Parkinson's to follow? I think
8: overall healthy diet. I think even with um, a disease or not, is really encouraged. Um, people will find different diets work well for them. Um, But really, I think the big one that I've seen a lot of work on is um, exercise. There's so many great exercise programs out there for people specifically with Parkinson's. Um, We have dancing, there's boxing seems to work really well, and um, yoga. And so we really encourage people to find um, an exercise program that suits them. And on our website, Parkinson's.ca, we have linkages to many community organizations that do offer them and that specialize specifically in Parkinson's.
1: Hmm. Uh, I, I remember uh, seeing a lot on something called Dancing with Parkinson's. That's correct. Yes.
8: Um, so Dancing with Parkinson's is a wonderful group, um, and they've been offering um, dance classes. And obviously, during COVID, it has gone virtual. So really, uh, many people have access to it as long as you do have access to internet. Um, and there is just great movement when people, um, as you know, as we talked about the the, the tremors and rigidity, um, Dancing with Parkinson's is really allowing people to lose that and really feel the freedom when they're dancing. Um, There's still a lot of work in the background on the research front to understand why that is, but I think it's so nice that that there is an outlet where people can feel encouraged um, and enjoy it and, once again, have that better quality of life.
1: Now, Parkinson's itself is is not fatal, but it it makes uh, people very susceptible to some things, correct? Yeah, so... um, I wouldn't say that you would die from Parkinson's disease, but once again,
8: uh, as we talk about all the other uh, comorbidities that do come with it, um, at the same time, there's a lot that isn't discussed, which is the non-motor symptoms. Um, so people do, will have bladder issues, and we talked about early on, I think you mentioned cognition, of course. Um, and um, these are things that ultimately affect people in the long run and so uh, speech has also impacted your vocal cords um, so over time it's not that you will um, that Parkinson's disease is fatal but you are susceptible and there's other comorbidities that do come with Parkinson's disease
1: and and so what's the course how long would you have had mm-hmm. Parkinson's before cognitive impairment sets in for instance
8: so what's so interesting about Parkinson's disease um, is everybody's journey is so different. Um, you have people who are diagnosed um, as these um, you know in that range from 60 to 70, um, and it's a slow progression. At the same time, you have people uh, I've heard as early as 30 years old or younger that are being diagnosed. Um, And their progression can be quicker or slower. And this is why um, understanding the disease, providing different types of treatments are so critical because not one treatment is going to be good for everybody. So I can't say for sure that cognition, there's a time frame. Some people might see it within a year. Uh, Some won't see it for a while. Um, But really, it is a very personal journey. At the same time, uh, we want to ensure at Parkinson Canada, we're supporting everyone with the right resources so they understand and can be prepared. Or at the same time, look at opportunities that might elevate or help them feel that they can continue to thrive.
1: Okay, Karen Lee, Parkinson Canada, thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for having us. Okay. And the province has just confirmed what you heard earlier here on Fight Back that the province is expanding access to Paxlovid, which is an antiviral drug to treat. COVID as opposed to trying to prevent it. And the rules now are it is open to people 70 and over. They have to take it within the first five days of diagnosis. If you're over 60 and have fewer than three vaccine doses, you will also be eligible as well as individuals 18 and over um, who are high risk or immunocompromised. Uh, and they're about to announce it. I think, just after Steve's one o'clock news. So we'll get you out to that. That's all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.